Welcome to episode 338 of We Don't Die Radio. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international bestseller called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. We are recording this interview beginning of May 2020, when most of us are in social isolation. Happy to report we've been creating some online courses, workshops, and even a free Sunday service to keep all of us interested parties inspired during this time. Our guest today is a wonderful man who I'm thrilled to welcome back. It's Dr. Raymond Moody, who first coined the phrase near-death experience about his research that began in the 1960s, into this phenomena about what happens when we die. He is the author of many books, which have sold by the millions worldwide. We first had Dr. Moody on our show a few years back on episode 118, where he spoke about how his journey began. Now, with over five decades of service, he has a brand new book called Making Sense of Nonsense, The Logical Bridge Between Science and Spirituality. You can visit his website anytime to find out about his private consultations, books, online courses, webinars, and more. And the website is lifeafterlife.com. Dr. Moody, welcome back to We Don't Die Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have such great uh, memories of the last time we talked, which is astonishing to me that it was you know, it, oh, you know, when you're 75, time goes by so fast. So seems to me just like last week, but that was a couple of years ago. It was. It went by really fast. I've been busy. You never stop. And I'm absolutely thrilled that your new book uh, has come out. Before we get too much into the new book, I mean, I know mm-hmm. I can't ask you to paraphrase the last 50 years really right. fast, but could you just a uh, little description about you? And I know when you started out, you were a skeptic into this world. Well, and uh, yes, basically, I my family was kind of down on religion. And um, so I went to the University of Virginia at age 18. Uh, and I can honestly, that was in 1962. And I can honestly tell you at that time, I literally thought that when people were talking about the afterlife, they were kind of making a joke because my my only exposure to it, to it was in uh, cartoons and my daddy, my dad's um, um, uh, New Yorker magazine, like the the pearly gates and so on. So I went to UVA and I immediately decided to be a philosophy major. Because just literally within the first few days in my philosophy course, reading Plato's Republic, I got hooked. And Plato is still is, is my hero. And so um, at the end of the Republic, there's this story about a warrior who was believed dead on the battlefield, but revived at his funeral. And And so Plato obviously took that story seriously as an indicator that there's a life after death and and this kind of sounds slavish in a way but i remember thinking well if plato thinks there's something to this then i better pay attention and i asked my professor and he said yeah these these early greek philosophers were interested in stories of people who almost died and returned and um one point of view of them was Plato's, which that these are indicators of an afterlife. 
But Democritus, who was the first person who figured out that things are made of atoms, who lived just a little bit before Plato, in his book about this, he, he said that, well, this is just the residual biological activity of the body. And so the same debate we have today, right, between people who say it's the afterlife and people who say, no, it's just oxygen deprivation. So I was just fascinated by this. And then um, about three years later in 1965, one of my philosophy professors told me that right there in Charlottesville, there was this guy, Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry there at UVA, and that he had had such an experience when he was actually pronounced dead twice in 1943. So I took the opportunity to listen to Dr. Ritchie, and that evening changed my life because, I mean, you know, I knew I didn't know what the experience meant, but I knew that George Ritchie was real. And to this day, he's just the finest guy I ever met. And so I kept on working on this, and then I began, I got my PhD in philosophy, and I um, started teaching at East Carolina University as a philosophy professor in 1969 and began to hear these from my students and also from my fellow faculty members. So um spent three years teaching philosophy and then went to medical school in 1972 and was a great opportunity then to hear a lot of these. So that's how I got started. I, I realized pretty soon that these people who say, oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain, don't really know what they're talking about because um, for for a number of reasons. But for one reason, uh, by the time I went to medical school at UVA, I'd been in, I mean, I, at the Medical College of Georgia, I'd been interested in these things for 10 years. And so friends of mine at the medical school had already spread the word among the faculty that the student coming in in September was interested in these things. And at some time in that first uh, quarter, this wonderful woman, a professor of medicine there, who uh, approached me in the bookstore, and she said, Dr. Moody, I've been wanting to talk to you. And she she um, took me over to her office, and she explained that uh, sometime before when she had been trying to unsuccessfully to resuscitate her mother, that she herself, the, the doctor, had gotten out of her body and uh, saw the scene down below and saw this light and saw apparitions of her mother's deceased relatives coming out of the light and thought. Then her, she said goodbye to her mother and then sort of came back and rejoined her, her um, body. And so obviously, you know, my professor was not ill or injured. There was no oxygen deprivation to her brain. So, um, you know, it was obvious from the beginning that these, this, this is not oxygen deprivation to the brain. There's, cause if the bystanders, as often happen, who are not ill or injured have the same experience, then something else is going on. Right. So I just kept on working on it. My book, Life After Life, was published in 1975. And while I was still in medical school, actually. And uh, so it sort of continued from there, and um, I've always had this battle with myself, and you know, you can't really, logic, which was one of my specialties in philosophy, you, you can't use Western logic as it exists now to positively prove 
um, an afterlife for reasons that I won't bore our listeners with, but it, it happens to be true. And so I've just been through a long process, and then you know, a few years back, just kind of finally said, I give up. I mean, I, I've heard from so many of my fellow medical doctors who have um, sort of empathically co-participated in their own patients' near-death experiences. And so I've kind of um, you know, reached a point where, well, to my astonishment, I have to say that there's an afterlife. I also want to go on to say that it's not, you know, people have got to make up their own minds about that, but um, but um, I'm not trying to convince anybody, but that's where I've come to it. Well, that's great, and you've done so much for humanity, and I know so many people that your books or your words or seeing you speak have made just a profound difference to you know, I hear that often, and I deeply appreciate it. And um, at the same time, I have to say that, you know, I have to acknowledge that this came from the Greek philosophers. That's, you know, that's where I ran into it. And so these things have been around a long time. And, you know, given that the university system was founded by Plato, he, he was the person who invented the university that uh, and that this was one of his main subjects were these kinds of experiences. So, you know, this has been with us for a long time. But what happened was that by the 1970s, there were so many of these because of the development of uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation that when my book came out, it took off because you know there were just so many people who then. When the book came out, stood up and said, yeah, well, me too. So Great. I can't really take credit. No, but you're sharing the good word in the style that only you have of making a difference. So it's been just over three years since we last talked. What's been keeping you busy? What What have you up to? I want to hear about the new book and whatever else is going on. Well, you know, I just got to say, for those of listening who are younger, don't worry about aging. 75 is so great. I'm just, uh, you know, I find my mind is even better than it, it ever has been. It's like, uh, and so I think being 75 is a wonderful thing. And uh, I remember very clearly in when I was 18 years old reading in Plato's Thedo the words, um, Philosophy is a rehearsal for dying, and that just hit me. I just said, right on. And here now, um, you know what, 50-plus years later, I've still got to say he was right. That, um, you know, a lot of times people ask me who are older, they say, well, what can I do to deal with the fear of death? And so I say, well, I I really have thought a lot about that, but I can't help you very much. I mean, it's a it's a intense study you've got to go through. But when I hear that from young people, which I hope some of them are listening, then I can say the best thing to do is study philosophy because um, even in in uh, two, the the year twenty twenty, um, the the in reality, life after death is not 
yet a scientific question for, again, reasons that I won't bore our listeners with, but it, there's just very clear reasons within the concept of science that it's not yet a scientific question, but it's still a very important philosophical question. And what I am very excited about right now in terms of your question is that I have... Um, I am really ready to say that uh, I have made a major advance or breakthrough in the genuine rational study of life after death. And that what this boils down to is that even though the mind we have and the logic we have right now is not adequate to to uh, get a handle on this question, there is a way to do it, and that is that we can actually reformat our mind by a fairly simple procedure um, and and open up mental faculties that we didn't need, know that we had. And that what this really boils down to, this sounds kind of, I won't abstract, but I won't dwell on it, but basically it's the logic we have is set up to, to deal with uh, with statements of a literal meaning. But as pointed out by many great philosophers, most significantly by David Hume, who was one of the founders of what we call now the scientific mind, uh, he was a friend of Ben Franklin's to date him for you. But Hume said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. And if you think about that, he, he was right, right? But then he went on to say, some new species of logic is required for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And he was probably being ironic and implying that it can't be because the logic we have has done us well for 2,300 years, mm -hmm. and at least we think we know our minds pretty well, and the idea that we can have these new mental faculties is kind of odd. But what I am ready to say here and now is that it is much easier to do than we think, and that over the years of my teaching in philosophy and my practice in psychiatry and so on, I've just developed this simple system where you can go through a series of exercises and observations, and it it reformats your mind. It opens up uh, new mental faculties, creative faculties, and cognitive faculties that you don't didn't even know you had. And when you put all these together, it just shines a totally new light on life after death. Now, where I'm heading with this is, as as you know, people who come back from a near-death experience, the most common thing they say they say is that no matter how smart they may be or how many degrees they may have, they say, I just can't describe it to you. There are no words for this. Mm -hmm. But what I have done is that I've invented a sort of workaround, like a way that we can correct that. And for years I've known that I've done a lot of these workshops over the years and um, where I've taught these techniques to people, and I knew full well that eventually somebody who had been to one of these workshops would have a near-death experience subsequently, and that when they came back, they would have a, 
whole new way of talking about it. Well, now it has happened. And a um, very wonderful and eminent scientist and artist who took one of my um, workshops uh, years before subsequently developed a horrible H1N1 infection, nearly died, was in the hospital for 60 days, lost his leg to gangrene. And when he came back, he called me up and he said, Raymond, he said, while I was on the other side, while he was in that other world, he said his mind went back to the uh, workshop he had taken and he said, and I realized that what you were saying is true then. And he's a physicist, by the way, so give him some latitude here. What, right. what he said was, he said, you can't understand how that world is connected to this world unless you take the unintelligibility axis into account was the way he put it. But what that means is that the classical objection to the whole idea of life after death is that it's a self-contradiction, right? That's what, if you get really down to these people who are objecting to it, uh, not on religious grounds or anything else, but just because they figured it out. The words that we have just don't say anything, mm -hmm. even though we have may have strong images and good feelings and so on. So what I've done is I've corrected that, and I, you know, I'm very cautious about my inferences, but I'm ready to go to the mat on this one, saying, "Yeah, I've done it," and. Um, but I'm saying that not to pat myself on the back or to make a claim, but to say, rather, try me out. That, um, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to go back and retract. But I've, I've, um, put this through a lot of very brilliant scholars and nobody can find a hole in it. And, um, so what I am saying now is that we can actually reformat our mind in a way that I think is fun and enjoyable. And that this gives us an entirely new, uh, genuinely rational way to think about life after death. So that's where, in terms of where I've been going in the last few years, that's it. And uh, again, when I make this claim, I'm not trying to make a dogmatic statement. I'm saying, try this out, you know, and, and if anybody can find a flaw in my work, then I'm then I'm benefited, right? Because if somebody shows me my mistake, then I can go back and correct it, and that gets me to the truth, more closer to the truth. But on the other hand, which is, I suspect, what will happen, that people who go through this say, yeah, I can't find any flaws in this, this is right, then I can confidently say that we've made a major breakthrough in the the, the biggest question of existence, whether, you know, whether there is an afterlife. That's pretty big. That's a big breakthrough. And I know the title of your book is Making Sense of Nonsense, The Logical right. Bridge Between Science and Spirituality. And also you had said something on your website, what do the whimsical writings of Dr. Seuss have in common with near-death experiences? Can you talk yeah. a little bit about this nonsense and Dr. Seuss? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a very interesting thing about people. And it's, it's, um, there's, a, I've, just both in my psychiatric career and also as a philosophy professor, I found that almost everybody has a, a cognitive flaw in us. This kind of, it, we learn it from very early in our life. And that is 
the thing that keeps us from thinking logically about life after death and a lot of other big questions, and that is that people love nonsense. Dr. Seuss's books have sold, hope you're sitting down, Mm -hmm. have sold over 600 million copies worldwide. Now, you think also of Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Mm -hmm. Carroll, and so on, and and, um, uh, uh, Shel Silverstein, for those of us who love him, all the great writers of children's nonsense. And if you're my age, you will remember doo-wop music, right, Mm -hmm. where it's the combination of nonsense, like sha-na-na-na-na-na, sha-na-na-na-na, get a job, right, Right. together with meaningful elements. And these songs will really put you into a trance. I used to play doo-wop songs to my logic students back in the 60s and 70s, and since I was standing at the front of the, the class, you could actually see these students going into different altered states by these different patterns of, of nonsense. And um, so so that's true. You know, they, or you think of um, all the, the nursery rhymes, hickory dickory dock, um, uh, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, if you like her, with scat singing, uh, Louis Armstrong, Al Jarreau, all the great... Uh, jazz singers and uh, who use nonsense syllables and so on. And uh, so people love nonsense. It's very enjoyable, and all, but they hate the word nonsense. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it creates a kind of cognitive imbalance, which makes it impossible for, for people to think a lot about logically about a lot of very important questions including the question of life after death, but there's others as well. You know that wonderful guy you see on TV who's a Japanese-American who's a physicist professor at NYU. Everybody's seen him. I forgot his name. Um, I saw in one of his Discover Channel um, programs a couple of years ago, I've heard him saying that the two most powerful explanatory systems in physics that we have are the general theory of relativity on the one hand, and on the other hand, the quantum theory. Mm -hmm. But what the professor said was that the trouble is that when you try to integrate the equations from these two systems, what you get is nonsense. Now, what that means is that in science, nonsense is a kind of placeholder, like it's something we hold on to in the expectation that eventually we'll figure it out, right? And so nonsense happens to be a very important concept, not just in literature uh, and music, but also in, um, in psychology, uh, in, in physics. Uh, and in spirituality, uh, for example, um, a lot of people know about glossolalia or speaking in unknown tongues, right? Yes. And this is a Christian tradition where uh, you uh, people get into these ecstatic states where, where they are uh, uh, talking nonsense. Well, linguists have studied this. 
And what they find is that glossolalia consists of nonsense syllables drawn from the speaker's own language, put together in a way that avoids any meaningful combinations or also any or also any grammatical structures. Uh, so it's just really nonsense syllables. And that may make it sound like something bad, but oh ho, if you've ever tried it like I have, it it you don't need an ecstatic state to get it started. But once you just sort of let yourself go and do this, it brings you into Or from another tradition, for example, Zen Buddhism, Buddhism, the koans, right? These are literally nonsensical questions like what is the sound of one hand clapping? Right. And the point of this is that the student is put to work on this question, and the first thing they do is try to solve it by logic. But when they go round and around and around trying to do that, they eventually provoke themselves over into other ecstatic states of consciousness. So, uh, and, and this is even more true in my book. I've got lots of examples of how um, nonsense of one form or another has been uh, very important uh, ways into altered states of consciousness in, in quite a number of different religion traditions and so on. And so, uh, or in psychology, a lot of um, really kind of astonishing observations. One is um, I um, discovered that if you if you talk nonsense to people, you don't tell them you're going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. You just catch them unawares, and then you start talking uh, nonsense to them. Eventually, it triggers something in their mind where they will start talking nonsense back to you without even realizing it. And uh, over the years, I've talked a lot about this at different professional meetings and so on. And some uh, very brilliant uh, government um, scholar uh, came down and you know talked with me about this in a few days. After we got a very enthusiastic communication from him, and he said that my colleagues and I found that we were very easily able to replicate your findings just by going into the local Starbucks and doing it. And so nonsense has very powerful effects on the mind, which you, which is one reason why you see it in a lot of commercials, right? I mean, people are, um, people paradoxically, pay more attention to nonsense than they do to uh, ordinary meaningful language. And I guess the most recent one is that series of motel commercials, which was based on bada book, bada boom, mm-hmm. right? We heard that um, repeatedly. So um, so it, there's a sad thing in the West that because we don't like this word nonsense, we block out a lot of really very important scientific and Scientific, scientific and psychological and spiritual um, uh, topics. Now, a lot of people listening to this, for example, will very fondly remember, if you go back to your childhood, playground rhymes, right? Like, right. one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. Um, uh, let's see. A, Nonsense. <laughs> a 
Yeah, let's see. Um, a blind man came to see the fray. A dumb man came to shout hooray. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came and killed those two dead boys. Now, that is nonsense, but you've got to admit that it brings a very vivid story alive in your mind. And uh, people just have very, very tender childhood memories about chants like that and how nonsense is such a big um, deal in our childhood years and that sadly as we grow older we sort of forget these things but by bringing them back into the present world we can actually absolutely i'm saying this i'm challenging people to put me to the test on this Mm -hmm. and see if they can find a flaw in my reasoning but um I don't think they'll be able to. What that means is that we can actually use these um, these new findings to open a pathway into uh, understanding in a rational way the afterlife question. And also, this is this is going to be so um, counterintuitive to many people listening to this, but. Uh, I've been ver- it's been verified many times. You can use nonsense of certain kinds of of um, configurations, and you can use it in connection with uh, altered states of consciousness. For example, mirror gazing, mm-hmm. the oracles of the dead. They would have. People, first of all, uh, prepare their minds with various kinds of nonsense formulas. And then when you gaze into an optical clear depth, which can be a mirror, but it more like more commonly in ancient Greece, they used these big cauldrons that were metal cauldrons that were highly polished on the inside and then filled with water and a layer of olive oil. So it looks like a optical clear depth. But when you set that up, you can do it very simply at home with a mirror and go through these exercises and gulp. You can actually seem to see and converse with the spirits of departed loved ones. And I'm not making this up. This is subsequently, I published this years ago and subsequently it's been repeatedly replicated by numerous other there's a lot of other scholarly uh, reports on it after my book. So uh, believe it or not, this works. And, and did you uh, write about that in the book? Yeah, you? yeah. It's okay. one of the exercises I put in there. It tells you very simply how to set up okay. fairly simple equipment at home where you can actually go through a process during which you, from your point of view, you actually seem to see and converse with um, spirits departed and in the sad situation we're going through right at this moment, um, there are a lot of people, as I'm seeing, who are, um, you know, who devastated by the loss of loved ones yes. during this pandemic. And um, as we speak, I'm looking at CNN here, and it's uh, 67,500 deaths from coronavirus just in the last, 35 days. So there is a lot of grief going on Mm -hmm. in this country. And, um, but this, the psychomantion method that I have 
described here, and which goes all the way back to ancient Greece, uh, Greece but it has um, been shown in many studies now to, to be an effective uh, method of, of uh, therapy, if I can put it that way, or, or healing during the grief process. Dr. Moody, if you and I were to talk nonsense to each other right now, what would that look like? Well, for example, one thing you'd quickly find out is that, you know, in our common sense view of nonsense, we kind of see it as a blank wall, right, Mm -hmm. like chaos and unformed. But actually, there's multiple different types of nonsense. I have cataloged over 70 different types, and that may seem strange until I listen to the following three sentences. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble and the wave." All right, now plainly that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. But now listen to this sentence. Holiness pursues the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. That's nonsense too, but it's plainly different from the first type, right? right. But now, li- now listen to this third sentence. That cannibal you men just ate was the last one in this county. That is obviously nonsense too, but yet a different type from the other two. Mm-hmm. But now let's, let's say I give you now a fourth sentence, and you will be able to tell which of those three categories it belongs into. And the sentence is, when you do this experiment, if you smell an odorless gas, it is carbon monoxide. That's plainly an example of the third category, right? Well, by in the the book and in the classes I taught at universities over years with this, what students do is they have these exercises where they learn these different patterns. And then they write their own creative examples of the different types. And what students, I've been doing this now, I first started teaching this in 1970 or 69 or 70. And I have, I guess, thousands of students by now who've been through this course. And what people will say is that these exercises open up parts of your mind that you didn't even know you had. And they have several effects. Um, one is students in my classes would say that, well, to the first one I remember was uh, this wonderful young woman who came to my class every day. She had her, she brought her baby in, in the stroller, and she would sit there in the front row, and the baby was always very sweet. <laughs> and um, so about the halfway through the semester, she came up one, after one, one day, and she said, Dr. Moody, she said, you know, I was having such trouble in my chemistry class. I was failing. And she said, but after we did these nonsense exercises, she said that suddenly I found that the chemistry was very easy, and and so she made a good grade. But I've heard that story now dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So it opens up your mind to, to things you didn't know you can do, you can suddenly do. A lot of my art students over the years, because there were a lot of art students at this campus, um, had said that it, you know, it sparked their creativity and it opened their ways up to new um, uh, new projects and so on. So it, I mean, it's it's very powerful effect on people, and um, it's just one of those things that's been missed. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things 
lying in wait out there for us to know about, which we don't know about. And uh, this is one of them. We can actually uh, empower our minds in totally new ways by doing these very simple and actually kind of fun mm-hmm. exercises. I, my, one of the, I think probably the most common response to my classes I've taught from beginning in 70 and it went, it went, kept on developing. Eventually it became a entire semester length course I taught on nonsense, which was attended not just by students, but English professors on the campus heard about it and began to flock to it, and also attorneys in town who were just fascinated by this because they're always looking for some new way to improve their critical thinking skills, right, was their take on it. And medical doctors who've taken it have said that it opens whole new ways of thinking about their patients. This, This was something I first discovered in medical school because I'd already been studying nonsense for a long time. And and I had, uh, by studying Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll and uh, Shel Silverstein and Samuel Beckett at, with Waiting for Godot, if any of the who remember that one, all of these are great nonsense writings. And so I had, by studying this, I discovered different kinds of nonsense. Well, when I got to medical school and started um, going on to the the uh, wards, I, I quickly discovered that different kinds of pe- people with different kinds of um, medical disorders talk nonsense. For example, uh, people who are delirious. Anybody who's ever seen a delirious patient will know that they go on and on and on. They don't make any sense. Or people who are intoxicated, for example, with mercury or with um, nitrous oxide or with certain other ethylene gas, certain mm-hmm. other intoxicants will talk nonsense. Or people who are schizophrenic will have very specific um kinds of nonsense they speak, and also even people who are severely stressed. I saw this all the time in the emergency room where they bring in somebody who was severely injured in an accident, right? Well, along with them often would become people who were there who had witnessed the accident, but they themselves weren't injured, but they were just coming in to help their friend or whatever. But when you tr- you couldn't get a straight story out of them because even though they weren't injured, they couldn't make any sense. They were just talking, you know, nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized was that the types of nonsense that speak, people speak involuntarily when they are ill or injured are identically the same kinds of nonsense that Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll and others make up deliberately. So what this means, if you think about it, is that it, nonsense is nonsense, regardless of whether it's deliberate or or um, involuntary. So this means that nonsense is is something in itself that we need to um, study. And what I've found over the years from this is that it just people say that this course just opens up whole new departments of their mind that they never knew they had, which they can then go on to use for for their literary purposes, for creativity, for to advance their spiritual state. Uh, 
and and even advertising over the years when I've done workshops um it just happens over the years that have been a number of people in the advertising profession and who happened into the course and they would come up and say oh wow this is a lot of great information I can use for my advertising business so it's just a very big area of life that people have sort of neglected it's a very important aspect of language and the mind. It's interesting, Dr. Moody, because I'm thinking back, I took a course on hypnotherapy back in the day. Yeah. And one yeah. of the tools that we learned was speaking nonsense and how That's right. fast it put the person in an altered state. And in addition, That's right. in addition, That's right. I took a course, and it may be with one of your students, because she mm-hmm. had us going back and forth with nonsense, purple cows, drink ginger ale over coffee in the morning. And we went back and forth and we were forced kind of by doing this to be in the present moment. And I think with all the studies that I'm doing with afterlife things and psychic stuff and mediumistic stuff, we need to be in that present moment to be aware kind of of the unseen world. And I can't help but think the more nonsense we add, the more present we will be, the more that we can pay attention to these subtle things we our busy minds normally wouldn't have. Oh, absolutely. I think you're so right. And there are many of the great creative figures of history have, have sort of been on to this, but nobody has ever sort of put it all together and systematized it. Um, you mentioned hypnosis, and one of the great hypnotists was... Uh, Milton Erickson, right? And um, he was one of the, um, and is still regarded as one of the greatest hypnotists, the uh, hypnotherapist there ever was. And um, in one of his articles, he talks about, it's a clinical article, he talks about he, um, w- he started working at this state mental hospital. And the first day he went in, he saw that there was this patient who would always sit by the front entrance. And when you would say hello to the patient, he would talk nonsense back to you. So Milton Erickson was thinking, well, now, what am I going to do for this man? (laughs) So after a while, every day it would be the same thing. You'd say hello and say say something meaningful. So finally he thought, well, what am I going to do? So he got the stenographer on the unit to sit there all day and to record all the nonsense that the patient talked. So then he took all the transcripts and he looked at it and he learned how to talk that specific variety of nonsense. So then the next day when he went into the unit and he said hello to the patient and the patient talked nonsense back to him, Milton Erickson started talking nonsense then back to the patient. And this went on for a number of days, I think about two weeks. And he said, finally, one day when he went in and he talked to the patient, he said, the patient said, when are we going to start talking sense around here, Doc? (laughs) (laughs) So this was a very big um, breakthrough for that particular patient. And um, so, I mean, I think I've seen a little bit of this in psychotherapy myself where you know, nonsense sometimes works when nothing else um, 
will. And and then in that final phase of life, anybody listening to this who's uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now will relate to this, as I've seen over the years. But uh, uh, anybody who's a medical doctor will certainly know about this, and that 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 it's very common in the last few uh, days or or hours or minutes of life that people will talk nonsense. Yes. And so when you ask the people who are left behind about this. Uh, they will say, yeah, I knew that my uncle or my father or whoever, I knew he was talking nonsense. But nonetheless, somewhere in the back of my mind, it, I kind of related to it, right? Or I, I kind of understood. And so what well, I am convinced that we can use this new, this new, and this new way of thinking about nonsense to actually be able to not decipher as though it were a code, but we can understand the words of the dying, this not an enigmatic form of nonsense that they speak, um, now in a totally new way by using the principles that I have developed in this work. So it gives us a way of actually tracking the mind as it goes into the next realm. This sounds, you know, very counterintuitive in a way, but so does every new thing that comes along. And this, yeah, this is uh, actually something that people are putting into practice now in whole new ways. So, I'm very excited about this. And as soon as we hang up from this, I'm going to download your book. I often say, especially at the end of this, these interviews, that I believe we're souls uh, having this human experience. And yes. part of the illusion of it is to have this mind. And I can't help but think we start practicing nonsense and we start pushing mm-hmm. the envelope into our higher selves. Oh, yes. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. And this this is very well established historically. And uh, it just hasn't been recognized. For example, you can, in some of the experts, the real experts on shamanism, for example, Mercia Eliada, who wrote the the classic book on shamanism, classic scholarly book on shamanism, uh, there and in a number of other sources, you hear about the shaman songs. Well, what a shaman song was, it was a complex verbal production that the shamans would use to actually project their their souls while they were... And um, as Mertia Eliada uh, and other scholars have pointed out what a shaman song consists of is nonsense syllables plus meaningful, ref- meaningless refrains put together in combination with meaningful language so that the combination is more powerful than either alone. And that was how they projected themselves over to the other side during their shamanic journey. Oh. And, uh, I mean, this is, takes a lot of explanation to get to this point, but just to get to the outcome of it is this works. I mean, you can actually, um, this, this takes a lot of training and thought and reflection, but you can, um, put these things together in a way that um, enables you, as I gather, to actually experience states of consciousness that do seem to 
pertain to some other world or other sphere of existence. And um, this sounds very strange, but to get to, like to get to an example that everybody would know, and I used to use this with my students in my classes, everybody knows that rhyme, hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one and down it ran. Hickory dickory dock. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the most powerful verses in the English language, and everybody knows it, right? We always teach it to our kids. But I used to ask my students, well, what happens if you drop the nonsense? The mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one and down it ran. Would you tell that to your kids? No, it's the combination of the nonsense and the meaningful parts that give the power to the verse, right? And that's the that's the same with doo-wop music. Mm-hmm. If you just listen to the nonsense, it doesn't go anywhere. If you just listen to the meaningful parts, it doesn't go anywhere. But when the the power of those two different types conjoined is what made the the power of um of doo-wop music. And so we can put all of these things that I'm talking about into very specific practical uses as well as uh, spiritual uses. And it gives us a totally new way to investigate the uh, near-death experience in, in in a totally new way where we can actually now reformat our minds with this information so that subsequently, when we have a near-death experience, we can come back and tell our fellow human beings about it in a, a totally new way. Oh, I just love that your friend that did. You know, I'm thinking also of children with all these nursery rhymes and things, their creativity, them living in the sense of wonder, and then all someday somebody tells them they're not good enough and the mind kicks yes. in. <laughs> but to That's get us right. back there... That's right. We can easily, you know, it's it's possible to do with this. Children at a certain age develop this antipathy to nonsense, but if you keep it alive in them, this makes them, it liberates parts of their minds as they grow up that the rest of us don't have because we've repressed it. And uh, children with very nat- will naturally come up with this anyway. It's like a lot of people listening to this, if you remember back to your own kids, you will realize that it's very common. Children in the age range of three to six will suddenly suddenly start talking nonsense words that they just make up, right, for fun of it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you, this is something anybody can observe just by watching your own kids. Well, if you think about what that means, that means paradoxically, it signifies that they know enough ordinary meaningful language to appreciate the difference, right, between nonsense and meaningful language, and to use this for fun. But this is built into kids anyway, and if we just keep, rather than writing them to do it, it's going to create a generation of kids that are, you know, have mental powers that are beyond what the rest of us have now, now in this, you know, the, the way we're set up. Oh, it's really good. You know, I'm thinking too, my mind, just talking nonsense, thinking about nonsense is I'm having new ideas. I'm thinking when you see a new paint, if you see a painting, well, let me put it this way. If somebody made you write a song or made you write a poem or 
um, have some whatever, write a song. There's no inspiration behind it. When you, when there is inspiration, that's when you feel good. The painting brings you joy. And I'm thinking that's- nonsense are gives you that feeling as well. So it's one of those little divine tools. And mm-hmm. I just, I'm very excited about, I don't know well, what I'm excited too, about, know, but I'm excited. Is, this is, it really is. I've, it, this is exactly what I heard from my students who were art students over the years that uh, once they went through all these exercises, they started playing around mm-hmm. with this, that it give, gave them, sort of opened up their creative channels. Yes. And, um, you know, led to all kinds of new ideas. Oh, I love it. I feel like you've given us a key, but do we have the guts to play with it? And yes, we do. I wanted to ask you, too, yeah. you, you have a book club that you're starting um, this May, which mm-hmm. if anybody's listening to this way in the future, I'm assuming mm-hmm. there'll probably be a replay on your website. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yes, my website is lifeafterlife.com. And what we do on there, you can look it up and see we have all these uh, programs like webinars. And uh, I've interviewed some of the great people who've studied near-death experiences like Eben Alexander and um, uh, just a lot of wonderful scholars who've, you know, investigated the near-death experiences. And we're also having a sort of... um uh, I, I've come up, I have written over a period of time, it's getting ready to be published, a, a book about my reflections on God. And these come from um, just my reflections on God that have come from listening to thousands and thousands of people tell me about their near-death experiences. And uh, this, the program, which begins in late May, is um, called uh, God is bigger than the Bible, and it's a um, it's twelve different thoughts uh, about God that I've had, and and it's there's going to be four segments of it, and it's a discussion about a whole new way of looking at God and to to experience the reality of God and to maintain a relationship with God without having to. Uh, join any particular restrictive religious sect. It's just an encounter with God that didn't come through the channel of ordinary organized religion, but was opened up to me by my encounters with the thousands of wonderful people that I have known over the years who actually felt the presence of God in the course of their near-death experiences. And it's called God is Bigger Than the Bible. I love it. And on behalf of all the other unemployed people right now, because my <laughs> main source of income has stopped right now because of this being housebound, thank you Listen, for having... we're in the same boat, and I, my heart goes out to all those people who are in the same boat or worse off even than, than we are. I'm just, uh, I really, my wife is a very sensitive person, and she's... She's been crying lately about as the death toll goes up. Mm-hmm. She's just so distraught about all the sadness that's going on in the country right now. So, it's you know, I hope that what I do and, you know, my books and my programs through lifeafterlife.com will, you know, bring some comfort to people. 
Um, yeah, well, and what I wanted to say is thank you for having the price be so reasonable. You can't oh, yeah. not do well, this. I have to. I know, but I've, thank you. That's really oh well. Generous. Listen, I'm I'm in that same boat. I've never been very good with money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if your your interest is in your creative work, you let the money side kind of fall to the wayside, which is so. You know, I'm not uh, by any means a wealthy person, so I figure a lot of the people who are are um, joining up with the website are in the same boat we are. So I'm, yeah. Do you still do the consultations with people? I, I know some brilliant minds that might really love to talk to you. <laughs> well, and, I, I do, and it's, it's like I am the world's worst person in terms of organization, but <laughs> on the the person who uh, handles the website, yeah, I, I do do consultations over the phone and so on, and a lot of it with you know people who have different questions and also um, – Sadly, people who are going through grieving process yes. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a lot of experience and you've got a lot of love in your heart. And you have a lot of tools in that mind between those two ears and all around you and all that. Oh, I'm so happy we're here. So we're approaching the end of the hour. Not that we have to mm-hmm. cut it short, but can you look in and see if there's anything else you want to share or talk about before we wrap it up or closing thoughts to people? Well, there is. I know that a lot of people are just going through horrible stress right now and don't know what's going on. And, you know, I am, I am in the same boat with you and I, I just want to, you know, send out my heartfelt sympathies and feelings, you know, and trying to comfort all the millions of people literally in the United States right now who are going through a terrible time and, and, you know, lost their jobs and uh, not knowing what the future will bring. And so I just want to say I'm with you. And, um, you know, anything that I can offer uh, through our the knowledge I've accumulated over the decades and decades now, I'm, I'm just hoping that I can do some good in, in this uh, time of horrible crisis. I mean, this is just a gosh awful thing we're all collectively going through i have a question for you do you think Mm -hmm. nonsense would make a difference for the grieving person well sometimes it does yeah it's um one thing i've noticed about um grieving i my experiences began with it in a very unfortunate way i was uh, i lost my first child to death at the age of 36 hours back in 1970. And uh, he was only uh, 36 hours old, technically, but to us that was nine months old, right? So I have, you know, I've been a grief therapist too, and I've, I mean, I've just, from this, even before I went to, to medical school, I was sort of a de facto grief therapist because people would, come to me to when they heard about my work with near-death experiences, they would come and looking to these experiences as to give them comfort and a grief. And um, one thing I've noticed in my grief work over the years that if people can open up new parts of their mind during the grieving process, is a very pregnant time to... Um, 
to try to come up with some new way of looking at things. And this is, you know, I think that in that despair that comes during the grieving process is paradoxically an opening to tap into powers of our minds that we didn't know we had. And so this is one tool among others, too, I think, that can help us in, in times like this. It definitely couldn't hurt. Well, Dr. Moody, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you. This has just been delightful. Just a conversation I needed to have, and it was nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and for all the people listening, too, it's uh, thank you so much for listening in. And I know some of the things I've said are very counterintuitive, but when I first started talking about near-death experiences in the early 1970s, it was very counterintuitive for people then too mm-hmm. so and yet now it's kind of accepted so i think we're going to go through a, the same process with this this is something that may sound odd at first but is quickly becomes almost a matter of common sense once you think through it i love it it's just interesting how fast my brain doesn't like the word nonsense and wants That's to not right. even be involved so it's it's just interesting. That's right. But but if you can just get through that mm-hmm. and just sort of think not of the word nonsense, but think Dr. Seuss and Lewis yeah, Carroll. that's and, fun. Then that puts a different spin on it. That's fun. And as a reminder, I know you have many, many, many great books, but this latest book is called Making Sense of Nonsense, The Logical yes. Bridge Between Science and Spirituality. And if you're viewing yes. this on... YouTube right it's now. Through Llewellyn Press, Llewellyn, Llewellyn Publishers. Available on Amazon. I'll, I'll, I have yep. the link included to anybody who's listening or viewing this on YouTube. And lifeafterlife.com is your website for all kinds of good things. Right. I love the God is Bigger Than the Bible <laughs> webinar that's starting. Thank you for that. And for our listener, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking yes, and me too. the thank time to listen. Yeah, it's interesting because I find so much, Dr. Moody, people just tune in at the most interesting times and never even heard of this, and they hear just what they need to hear. So we've opened up some minds to nonsense, which is great. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's so great to talk with you again. Oh, it's wonderful. For our listener, all past episodes are available at wedontdieradio.com. There's now an events page, and we're doing a lot of things online with a great course, Connecting with Your Soul in the Unseen World. That's a video course we're doing while we're in lockdown anyways, weekly live mediumship demonstrations for just a small charge, um, and many other things, which are just great. Our Sunday service, Dr. Moody, a bunch of us got together, and we are doing something that feels really good, tying in spirituality, the afterlife, music prayer, all kinds of great things, but it's all on the home base, we don't die radio.com. Also, you can sign up for my mailing list, which is called the Insiders Club, and you'll receive a, a free PDF file of my book, We Don't Die, as well as a very healing audio called How to Survive Grief. Uh, feel free to join our Facebook group, now over 5,000 wonderful members that we talk about these kind of things. It's great. Just go to Facebook and type in We Don't Die Listeners. 
And in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain, and I'm always so happy to be your host on We Don't Die Radio. I do believe that life is an education for the soul, that your life here on earth is important. So let's add some nonsense, broaden our horizons, and see what we are capable of. I just love it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Music